All right, if you have a Bible from the coffee house area, it's on page 834 today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Zach, great job reading today. Um, I always think you need to just be a hype man for a living, whatever that job is. <laughs> Marcus is going for the same job, apparently. So, um, let, me, let me just start with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into our study. Lord God, we ask your blessings on us as we open up the word. We know that it never comes back void. And so we pray that you would fill us up, that you would change our lives, and that you would shape our minds um, into the pattern of the image of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. We're in a series called Welcome Home. And what we're trying to do is to lay out really the core values, the, the, the things that give Oikos its strength and its movement, the things that unite us, the things that move us, as a, as a church, as kind of as a whole group, a big family. And we're very near the end. This is really one of the last ones. We'll have a kind of a wrap-up sermon next week where we talk about missional partnership. But what we're doing is exploring this mission and then talking about how it takes shape. Our mission here is to see people deeply transformed by God's grace through the gospel of King Jesus in Memphis to the ends of the earth. And what we've said is that our transformation, if that's what we're all about, has to overcome our kind of inevitable formation. And so we've been asking, how are people formed? Well, people are formed at the center by the stories that we believe, the, the things that we believe about ourselves, the things that we believe about the world. But then that then informs our identities. So our identities, we talked about that. But we're also formed by our relationships. Last week, we explored this idea of how really our, our early relationships has set the trajectory for our life. And what God wants to do is to heal us in our relationships and through our relationships so that we can trust God and others more deeply. But this week, we're going to explore this last piece of how do we overcome kind of the things that we do? How do we overcome the things that are done to us? These, these cycles, these rhythms, these habits. And each of these pieces of formation has a counter formation in, in the gospel. And so in the place of the stories that we believe, we believe the story of the gospel. It is our centering story. It is the transforming story that informs everything else we do. Um, our identities are now informed by who God says we are. That we've been adopted into a family. And today we're going to look at the kind of ministry that we're called into. So that's kind of where we're coming from. Um, but let me set the stage. Today we're going to ask really three questions. What's the problem? What's the solution? And then what does that do for us? Like what difference does it make? What's the problem? What's the solution? What, what difference does it make? And so we're going to ask first, what's the problem? And if you are somebody who takes notes, the back of your bulletin, if you have one kind of on your row or around you, there's just a big blank spot. Um, you can kind of track with what I'm doing. If you want to do that, I encourage you to do it. Um, but setting the stage for the problem of the things that we do and the things that are done to us is a pretty big, big uh, task. Because the problem, the scale of it is just so massive. The, the problem in scripture is this word sin. Sin isn't a word that we use very often. You're not going to go to a therapist who uses the word sin um, most of the time. I, maybe, maybe candy or something. We, we have other language for, for doing that. And so I'm going to try to fill out this biblical word with some other ways of thinking about it. And I'm, I really, I'm, my way in is going to be Genesis chapter 3. Remember the story of the Garden of Eden? There's this beautiful garden. There's, you know, waters and 
it's lush, there's fruits, there's trees, and there's two people there, Adam and Eve, and they were made for life together with God to live forever in this amazing place. But in Genesis chapter 3, we call it the fall. There's, there's this choice that, that's rooted in a distrust of God that has these ripple effects of, of sin. Let's just reflect for a moment on Genesis 3 to kind of set the stage for what the problem is. I'm calling it the genesis of brokenness. And what we see in Genesis chapter 3 is that sin leads to a, a disconnection, a brokenness with how we relate to the world. The world itself is changed because of sin. This, this language shows up in Genesis 3 where the, the, the land, the ground, the world, the creation is cursed. It's cursed because of sin. So sin leads to death in, in our world and in us. But So this is the language of, of like James, the brother of Jesus. He says that, that sin is like a seed that it, when, it, when it's planted and when it grows, it brings forth death. It, it kills us. The wages of sin is death, the Apostle Paul says. And it has this deadly effect on the, the systems and the structures. The very structures of our world are broken by sin. But it doesn't just stop there. It also breaks the relationship with others. You remember what happens with Adam and Eve? What do they start saying about each other? It was that woman. They just turn on each other immediately. There's, there's blame. There's, there's even violence. In, in Genesis 3, at least straight in Genesis 4, where the children are now murdering each other. And then by Genesis chapter 6, the violence is so widespread, it says their thoughts are only evil continually. And that's what everybody's doing all the time. There's a, there's a brokenness in how we relate to other people. And how our, our families, how we relate to our families, and our moms, and our dads, and our brothers, and our sisters. The Genesis story is saying that brokenness comes from those places. But it also then leads into a brokenness within our own self. This is the, the experience of shame. So in Genesis chapter 3, remember Adam and Eve, we're still there. They're, they're experiencing, now they see themselves as naked before God. He, they were always that way, but now they have this experience of shame on top of it. They are afraid and they want to hide. And so there is anxiety, there is fear, there is shame, there is guilt, all introduced because of sin. And this has an isolating effect within ourselves. Do you see it? And then, do you see how these are dotted lines? Because they're porous. They're, it's really hard to tell where one starts and one stops because they kind of all bleed into each other. But then, it's not just that there's structural evil, and it's not just that there's relational brokenness, and it's not just that there's psychological pain. It's that at the center of all of this, the, the origin story of sin is a broken relationship with God. It's a distrust in the goodness of God that leads to the destroying of goodness in all creation. So this is the web of, of brokenness, of alienation, of separation, of pain, of, of, of sin and death. This, this week, um, I'll say someone close to us uh, received a foster child from like DCS and, and the system, right? And there's nothing that shows me kind of the brokenness of the whole thing quite like this system. You see the, the structural brokenness and the systemic problems. 
But you also see that there's a, a relational, there's a family problem. There's normally, in this situation, there's, there's not a mom and dad who are married to each other and who wanted to have children. But then there's also, it's, it's not just structural, the system. It's not just family and, and relationships. There's now forever going to be this psychological issue. In this case, there was kind of at the center of it a drug issue involved as well. It's just like, where, where does one start and one stop? And honestly, in, in my own family, it's kind of hard to tell. In my own heart, it's hard to tell. Some of the darkest parts of me, I've, I've been able to kind of identify how I, even looking back, how I relate to my mom and dad and, and to kind of my family tree. And I realized that I, I kind of inherited a lot. I've, I've absorbed a lot of the ways I relate. Some of my brokenness didn't start with me. It was handed to me. But then at some point, I so internalized those stories, and sometimes I even made them worse, that then I start sharing the same stories. And so it's not just that I was handed something, it's that now I'm handed it on to my kids. And I see it happening, not just my kids, but my friends, my family. Every one of us has this experience of this problem, of the world in all of its brokenness is conforming us into brokenness and sin, and in Scripture it's called sin and death. But we can call it brokenness. We can call it trauma. We can say it's the things that happen to us that change us that then we end up doing to others. It's this web of, of it's a cycle. I, I call it holistic sin. Holistic, I, I just mean it's the whole. It's the whole of the thing. It's all broken. In Christian tradition, there's this really important doctrine, the doctrine of sin, that kind of accounts for the brokenness of the world. Because we believe and we are worshiping a God who is good and who made a good world. And yet, the world that we live in is so holistically broken. What's he going to do about it? That's, that's where we're, we're diving in today. Now, there's a lot of ways you could answer what is God doing about sin. And so what I'm trying to do is find one text that kind of shows a big picture of God's solution to the problem of sin. And we could go a, a hundred different places, right? But we're just going to try to focus in on one passage in Matthew chapter 9. Because what we see is that the story of God in this problem of holistic sin finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who, who was God and he has entered into the story so we're going to pick it up in Matthew, but you have to know that Matthew already says that he is God come in the flesh and that this one, he is deeply affected by the problem of sin, but he himself is sinless. And so by the time we meet Jesus, it's still trying to introduce us to what makes him special, what makes him special. And, and the thing that he says is the solution to the problem we're asking, what's the problem? It's this holistic picture of sin, the genesis of brokenness. But the solution to the problem, in the words of Jesus, is the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. Now, in, let me just show you, Bible nerds, kind of tune in. If you're not into, like, biblical structure, you can kind of tune out. I'll give you permission. I'll, I'll invite you back in in just a minute. Um, but this is, this is really cool. In Matthew chapter 4, it's the end of the chapter. There's this summary statement. 
It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news. That's our word gospel. The good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And you wouldn't believe what Jesus does next. He does exactly what the summary statement just says. But then in chapter 9, do you see how similar chapter 9 and chapter 4 are? It says Jesus went throughout Galilee. Now he goes throughout all the towns and villages. And what's he doing? He's still teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And he's healing all kinds of affliction and disease. It's the same. These are, are like bookends. You know what I mean? They're, they're providing, they're big brackets that say something has happened in between these. Let me, let me illustrate. So in chapter 4, we see the gospel of the kingdom is introduced. And it looks like teaching and proclaiming as well as healing all kinds of diseases and afflictions. In chapter 9, we see the same summary statement. But look at what happens right in the middle. And the reason I'm showing you this is because we're about to dive into this, this section. Chapters 5, 6, and 7, we call the Sermon on the Mount. This is the kingdom words of Jesus. You want to know what the kingdom looks and sounds like? Check out the Sermon on the Mount. We'll, we'll, we'll study that another day. That's not our text today. Our text shows up right in the middle of nine stories of Jesus doing kingdom deeds. Nine stories of Jesus doing kingdom deeds. And it's trying to answer this question. One, who is this guy? But, but really the question is, what does it look like for the king to bring the kingdom? What does it look like to solve this problem of sin? And if the kingdom of God is the solution to the problem of sin, Jesus, what does it look like? It looks like the Sermon on the Mount, and it looks like these stories. And as we get closer to our text, I know I'm given kind of way out here, and I'm, we're shrinking in. What happens in, at the end of kind of this, this triad of stories in, in chapter 8 is that he, he looks at the storm. Remember, he's, he's in a boat and there's a storm that comes over the Sea of Galilee. And it says that he commanded the storm to, to be still and the storm obeyed him. That's authority. But then straight out of that story, there's this, this man who's possessed by, by demons. And he's just going crazy. He's, he's going berserk. But then Jesus commands the demons to leave him. And you know what the demons do? They obey him. The, the, disaster, the natural disasters obey him. The demons obey him. And now in our story, it's still asking us, who is this? Where does he get his authority? What does it look like for the kingdom? Let's, let's dive in. That's a lot of introduction to some really cool verses in Matthew chapter 9. Let's, let's just... Uh, read through 1 through 13 together and make some reflections about this kind of ministry that Jesus introduced, the gospel of the kingdom. It says, Jesus stepped into a boat and he crossed over and came to his own town. He's, he's home. He's going to Capernaum. And some men brought to him a paralyzed man who is lying on a mat. Okay, do you remember the story? In Mark's version, this paralyzed man gets lowered in through the roof. Matthew doesn't include those really cool details. Same guy. It's got to be the same guy. So many other details are, are lining up, so it's, it's him. But one of the questions that's kind of looming over the story is, what happened to this guy? How did he get paralyzed? And, you know, we don't actually have an answer there. We know that he is paralyzed. He, he's not unable to move. He has to lie in a mat. He doesn't seem to be able to walk. So how do he get this way? Um, one commentator 
He says, both scripture and Jewish tradition take sickness as resulting directly or indirectly from living in a fallen world. Does that make sense? How do people get sick? Well, in, in scripture, scripture says every sickness has its origin in the fall. You remember the, the circles, the, the world and our relationships with other people and with ourselves and, and at the heart of it with God. It all is in that web. And that doesn't mean that every sickness is because of some decision you made. Do you remember the story in John 9? Who sinned that this man would be born blind? And Jesus said, was it his parents? Was it him? Jesus said, no, neither. Yes, he lives in a fallen world. So there's this expectation. that There's a connection between the sickness and the death that we experience and the big problem of sin, but it's not a one-to-one. There, uh, another commentator, he says, there was a deeply rooted conviction in Judaism that all suffering was a result of personal sin and that nobody could be cured until she was forgiven. The rabbis, there's actually a lot of quotations. The rabbis th- seem to think that you have to be forgiven before you can be healed. And maybe Jesus is stepping into that tradition because look what he does. Th- they bring this paralyzed man who's living into the fallenness of this world. And it says, when Jesus saw their faith, faith in what? <laughs> I, I think it's Jesus can do something about it. That's it. Jesus can do something about it. Let's go. Uh, and so he said to the man, take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, this is interesting for a lot of reasons. Even the little word son. Jesus is not an old man. I'm, I stand before you as someone who is older than Jesus was at the time. And so he has this term of endearment to this man who's been dragged up to him. It's a, it's a tenderness of Jesus that we see. And what he says is, take heart. Be encouraged. He is for the guy on the mat. When he's got some friends there who are, who are with him, but this guy has felt the brunt of the brokenness of the world. And Jesus says, I'm with you. I'm, I'm family. But then he says, take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. It's so weird. I was just picking up commentary after commentary, trying to figure out what's going on here. Why does Jesus begin with forgiveness? I like, I like this one. This paralysis was the sort where what we would call psychological forces had reduced the body to immovability. The man had done something, perhaps many things, of which he was deeply ashamed. And he not only felt guilty, he was guilty. And he knew it. Now, perhaps this commentator is reading a little into the story. But Jesus starts with sin and forgiveness. He gets to healing, sure. But he starts right here because it seems to be connected. The problem of sin and the fallenness of the world is something that Jesus wants to do something about. They saw their faith. But, of course, the, the people around him, they, the teacher of the law, they say, this fellow is blaspheming. I think it's probably safe to say, anytime you say this fellow, you're going to say something rude after that. It's, it's, it sounds almost like a British way of insulting people, but uh, I don't think that's what's going on here. Uh, this fellow is blaspheming. It's because he's saying he can forgive and he can forgive independently of the temple and he can forgive independently of temple sacrifice. Now, all of that is it's true. 
And Jesus is about to prove it to him. So he says, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? It's obviously easier to do the one that you can't prove. So let me do the harder thing and I'll show you what I mean. But do you see how the forgiveness of sins doesn't then like hold Jesus back from also caring for him as a whole person? He cares about the paralyzed man in his life, in his wholeness. Not just his sin. He cares about his sin, but he also cares about his body. He's going to do something about that too. And so he says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Now this phrase, Son of Man, is really cool. Um, it's, it's a double entendre in, in Jewish kind of culture at the time. What I mean is that it has, it's like a double meaning. It can just mean this person, this man, this human. But it's also this quotation. It's a phrase that comes from Daniel chapter 7. The prophet Daniel said, one like the Son of Man is going to come on the clouds. And he's going to suffer for the sins of the people. And then he's going to become king. The divine human king. The name for that in the Hebrew prophets. The divine human king is Son of Man. Jesus, this is the phrase that he uses to describe himself most often. He most refers to himself as the Son of Man, as the divine human king who will suffer for his people and then reign with God in heaven. Makes sense. That's where the story's going. But he wants you to know something about the Son of Man. He has authority. He has authority over the storms that obeyed him. He has the authority over the demons that obeyed him. And now he has the authority over disease that will obey him. And so he says, get up, take your mat, and go home. Now, you know me. I, I can't stop. So this is oikos language. Isn't it weird? And it's not like I'm just going through the Bible looking for oikos language. There's just oikos language throughout, throughout the Bible. But the reason I highlight it here is because he says, take up your mat and go home. And do you know what the man did? He did exactly what Jesus said. That is authority. A, a paralyzed man, Jesus has authority to heal to change his life, to change his body, yes, to forgive his sin, but also to, to raise him up. And then it says the man got up. That is a resurrection word in the rest of the New Testament. That is the word that he arose. That's the word that Jesus is going to step into in a big way. And it's saying that this man got a little taste of resurrection life already. That's what it looks like for the good news of the kingdom of God to come into a person's life. The kingdom of God has come upon you. Resurrection has broken in. It's, it's a beautiful thing that happens. But when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. Literally, the word is fear. They were afraid. In, in Scripture, when people see God, they get afraid. These people seem to be recognizing this man knew hearts. This man forgave sins. This man could heal disease. We are not just in the presence of a man. And so they feared and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Now, that's a weird line here because this is plural. <laughs> um, the NIV, the translation we're using today, it makes it look like it's singular to a man, to the man. It's not what it says. To people, to humans. Uh, Jesus seems to be sharing this authority with his people. And this is exactly where the story goes. And if you keep reading just one chapter over, this is how chapter 10 starts. 
It says that he gave authority to his disciples. He says, I want you to go and announce that the kingdom of God has come near and I have given you authority to heal and to do exorcism. The things I'm doing, I want you to do. Remember when Jesus leaves, he says, you're going to do greater works than I have done. He's given authority to people, to humans. So, first question was, what's the problem? We said it's a holistic picture of sin. Second question was, what's the solution that we see in Jesus? And we see that Jesus is the unique son of man who is bringing in the kingdom of God. He's the king bringing the kingdom. He's doing something about the big problem of sin. But then it's almost like Matthew wants us to ask this question next because of how it's structured. What do we do about it? What do we do about it? There's a lot of groups that are seeing Jesus do remarkable things. Some of them are scandalized and they say, this fellow. Some of them are afraid and they kind of cower. But there's a story that happens right here that I think shows us the ideal response to Jesus. And it's not fear. It's, it's not doubt. The ideal response to Jesus is discipleship. It's a story that goes straight from one into the, the calling of Matthew, the, the tax collector. And he says, I want you to follow me. Let's just keep reading for a few verses and we'll make some bigger reflections. So as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting. Matthew, we're reading Matthew. This is the guy. <laughs> this is, he's writing himself into the story in a really cool way. Sitting at the tax collector's booth. He's a, I've heard him called tax farmers. This is how he earned his living. Uh, he would collect taxes on behalf of Rome, and he would charge a little extra on the side so that he could get rich. And this is what he does every day. Um, he's not just filing people's IRS claims. He's, he's taking money from the, God's, the Jewish people, from God's people, and he's giving it to Rome and to himself. But Jesus shows up to this guy, and he says, I want you to follow me. And he told him, and Matthew, he got up and he followed him. Of all the stories that we see where Jesus says something and people obey. The storm obeys, the demon obeys, the disease obeys, but here, the sinner obeys. The sinner obeys the authority of Jesus. And so while Jesus, it says that <clears throat> Matthew got up and he followed him, but then the very next verse, while, Matthew, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. I love this. Do you see how he's actually reversing the curse? It's not, he's done, he's dealt with the sin thing. He's, he's dealt with the, the psychological thing, the, the personal body thing. But now he's, he's actually inviting this guy into a shared community of people. He's dealing with the social isolation separation. And so it's just, they had this big party in a house. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he doing this? Um, maybe that's a good question. Because at this time, you couldn't do that if you were a teacher of the law. It was unclean. You couldn't do that and then go into the temple and worship. You'd have to wait. But that's not how it works with Jesus. What is Jesus doing about it? He's, he's creating this space where Matthew can belong. And where Matthew's friends can belong and, and experience the loving compassion of God. Later on in this chapter, verse 36, it says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed 
and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's, that's how Jesus experiences lost people. But here, Jesus goes on. He says, on hearing this, Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He's quoting from the prophet Hosea. And in Hosea's time, there were people who got all the sacrifices exactly right. And yet, they were cruel, legalistic people. He says, that's not what I'm after. I don't want you to check every box exactly right. I want your hearts to, to beat like mine does. And God's heart beats for the lost, for the broken, for the sinful. He says, I want you to look like me. I want you to love like me. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I love this, this um, phrase from Michael Green. He says, the kingdom is a one-class society for sinners only. You see what Jesus does with the problem of sin. But then, do you see what Jesus does to invite us into his discipleship? Just come follow me. What would it look like for us to imitate the heart of Jesus for sinners? To desire mercy, not just precision and rule-keeping and self-righteousness, but desire mercy in the same way that Jesus does. The the problem was holistic sin. And I think Jesus' solution is holistic ministry. He's going to care for every part of a person. The story in the Gospel of Matthew goes on where he gives his life as a ransom for many. And because of his sinless sacrifice, Jesus makes atonement to reconcile people to God. He can wash away their sins. It says that he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so he can step up to people and say, your sins are forgiven. And he casts them out. He sends them away. That's the word for forgive. He sends them away to where they're no longer counted against us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The king has reconciled us to God. But he doesn't stop there. What the king does is that then he reconciles us to ourselves and he restores our identity in him. And then he doesn't stop there. He expands it and he says, let's have a celebration. Let's have a party. Let's, let's get around the table. Let's get in a home and let's experience the joy of community and family together. But then what the gospel of Matthew shows is that the son of man is going to come on the clouds and he's actually returning to finish what he started. That the church... The church, it's a foretaste of the big thing that's coming later. It's the first fruits of the greater harvest that's still to come. It's only the beginning, the foretaste of the glorious return of the Lord when he's going to make all things new and he's going to make all things right. Jesus Christ is going to finish the job. And so he says, I want you to go into all the world and I want you to make disciples of all nations. The discipleship, the call of following Jesus is for the world because Jesus is going to renew all things. So it looks like the whole gospel, it looks like words and deeds. It looks like evangelism and justice. It, it's the whole gospel of the kingdom of God. It's not just the whole gospel, it's for the whole person, the heart, the soul, the mind, the, the body. It's for the whole person. He, 
He's going to restore us fully. He's going to make our bodies like his. We don't know what we will be, but we know this. When he comes, we will, we will be made like him, for we shall see him as he is. Our bodies are going to be transformed. He's going to make us right in a whole way. And then he's going to do it for the whole world. But, guys, here's the, here's the issue. That's what Jesus is doing in his ministry. That's what Jesus is going to do at the end when he returns. But here we are kind of caught in between. And we're thinking, all right, so all we have to do is preach the whole gospel in word and deed for the whole person, for the whole world. And we're looking at each other like, uh, that's, that's a lot. That's a, that's a whole lot.